I told you that we are going to be dealing with the issues related to uh, giving as Paul is bringing that segment of the word to a close. I would like to tell you that we are going to make a change in the way we receive our offerings in the future. If you would, I would like you to make out the checks that you give or if you use the offering envelopes to put my name on there. Okay? Just pay to the order of Brian K. Wingenroth. And, um, and, and I, I give you my word, I will take good care of things, okay? You, you're, you're kind of laughing about that as if I would never ask you to do that, nor should you tolerate that kind of a request. The reason being that the Bible makes it very clear that there are very responsible ways that we are to care for the Lord's gifts that are given by his people. And when we come to this, actually, I'm going to go back a little bit. As we come to the end of the eighth chapter, we find that there is instruction concerning the administration of how gifts are supposed to be handled. And so there is a responsibility from the church's point of view for that which is given that's pretty clear in these verses that I'd like you to look at. Look, if you will, at chapter 8, and I'm going to begin reading right there at uh, verse 16. But thanks be to God who puts the same earnest care for you into the heart of Titus, for he not only accepted the exhortation, but being more diligent, he went to you of his own accord. And we have sent with him the brother whose praise is in the gospel throughout all the churches. Now, let me just stop reading there for a moment and bring you back up to speed on what is happening here. Paul has written to the believers in the, in the, the church at Corinth. He has used the Macedonian churches as an example. He's saying you had determined a year ago to make a commitment to help the saints in Jerusalem who are going through a terrible time of deprivation and even of, of persecution. They didn't have enough, and, and their lives were, were, were quite frankly in danger. And so one of Paul's priorities was to get enough given by the churches. And by the way, this is rather interesting. These were Gentile churches who were giving to be of help to the Jewish believers in Jerusalem. One of the things that that was going to help accomplish was it was going to help bring unity to the whole body because, as you know, in the early days of the church, those who were of Jewish descent felt that salvation was for the Jew. And they had a hard time accepting the fact that Gentiles were also going to be given the gospel. Now the Gentiles have an opportunity to minister to the needs of the Jewish believers, and this is going to be a great step forward for the church. So Paul is now writing, and he's saying this. Titus, who has had a great deal of concern for this ministry and for you at Corinth, is going to be coming, and he's bringing others with him. And the reason is... They are going to be the ones who will be entrusted with the gifts that you give. So you've got a context now as we continue reading on. In verse, uh, I'm going to go back to verse 18 again. And we have sent with him the brother whose praise is in the gospel throughout all the churches, and not only that, but who was also 
chosen, that was selection by a vote of the church. That word chosen carries with it a great deal of information. The church voted to have this individual accompany Titus for the, the collection of the saints. And he says, not only that, but also was chosen by the churches to travel with us with this gift coming from Macedonia, which is administered by us to the glory of the Lord himself and to show you, show your ready mind. Avoiding this, that anyone should blame us in this lavish gift which is administered by us providing honorable things, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. And we have sent with them our brother, whom we have often proved diligent in many things, but now much more diligent because of the great confidence which we have in you. If anyone inquires about Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker concerning you. Or if our brothers are inquired about, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. Therefore, show to them and before the churches the proof of your love and of your boasting, pardon me, and of our boasting on your behalf. All right. What is all of that saying? And it comes down to this. When God's people are asked to provide for the Lord's work, for the needs that are arising by virtue of people's affiliation and their identification with Christ as their Savior, there is a responsibility of administration that falls upon the shoulders of those who are the receivers of those gifts to see that those gifts are appropriately cared for and that they are appropriately distributed. When you read those verses together, that's exactly what Paul is talking about here. He's saying this, individuals who are trustworthy have been selected to oversee the administration of all these gifts that you're giving, and not only that, this is an incredibly large gift that is being received. So there's a great deal of administrative responsibility that falls upon the shoulders of these representatives who have been commissioned to carry not only the Macedonian gifts, but also now the gifts that will be received in the city of Corinth to see to it that those gifts are protected, that they are cared for properly, and that they are correctly administered and distributed. And he goes on to talk about the fact that there is the possibility of criticism that could fall if these things are not cared for. Look back there at verse 20 where he says this, avoiding this, that anyone should blame us in this lavish gift which is administered by us. It's, it's Paul's way of saying this, we don't want there to be any doubt about the way we handle this stuff. We want everything to be up and above board. We want everything to be cared for in the right way. Now, you'll recall in the earlier part of chapter 8, Paul's explanation was extended to us concerning the, the, the methodology that we should use in providing gifts for the Lord's work. But now he has turned the tables, and he said this. Now, those of us who are receiving that gift, we've got to be very, very careful that we do the right things with that which you give. And he points out that there are going to be a number of people who administer this gift and see to it that it is cared for the right way. Having said that, 
How does that then boil down to us as a body of believers? And it comes down very simply this way. Each week, our congregation receives offerings. There are times that we receive special offerings for special purposes. We received an offering for the the needs of the folks in Haiti. And we received an offering for the needs of the uh, orphans in Nepal. And there are other special gifts that we will receive. They're substantial. There's a significant amount of money that's involved. And then week by week, we receive the regular offerings from our people, and that becomes substantial. So what's our responsibility? Our responsibility is to be sure that everything is done above board, that there are no questions about the way finances are handled. And some of you may be very, very familiar with this, but some of you may not be. And so I want to take the time to just explain to you the care that is used in the distribution of the funds that are given. You are aware that when we receive the special offerings, like for the orphanage, everything that is given for that is sent to that ministry. And what's really neat is everything that is sent to them is used for the orphans. There's not administrative expenses because the missionaries that oversee this are supported by other gifts that churches who are involved in their support give. Does that all make sense? Everything, it's 100% is used for that. So that is something that we then turn over to to the uh, administrators of the special projects. But what happens here? Well, first of all, As a congregation, you have verified that there are individuals who will serve as deacons of our church to see to it that the finances and the material things related to the ministry here are well cared for and done up and above board. And you select the people whose character, whose whose commitment, whose honesty is above reproach. And that's a, a wonderful thing. But then there's a whole lot more that is involved. When the offerings are received, there are always a multiplicity of individuals who are involved in counting that money. There's never a single individual who does that. There's always a a group of people who are involved to see that nothing untoward takes place. In addition to that, if any checks are written, they require more than one signature in order to be valid. And so we have checks and balances going on there. With the expenditures that are made, there are certain amounts of expenditures that are allowed to be um, administered by the business manager. Then a larger amount is allowed to be ministered by the deacons. But if there is something of major consequence, it comes back to the congregation to vote before anything goes on. In addition to that, every year we have, what's that called? An audit. I can't hear you up here. My sciatic is keeping me from hearing. (laughs) We have an audit. And so we have an outside firm come in and they double check everything that's going on. Does that give you a clear picture of how the finances are handled here? Because that's just as important as your involvement in giving. 
Things have to be handled the right way. So you have this administration that is described by Paul initially, and then when you get down into the ninth chapter, he tells again about the preparation of the hearts of the givers so that things are given appropriately. Beginning at verse 1 of chapter 9, Now concerning the ministering to the saints, it is superfluous for me to write to you, for I know your willingness about which I boast of you to the Macedonians, that Achaia was ready a year ago, and in your zeal has stirred up the majority. Yet I have sent the brethren, lest our boasting of you should be in vain in this respect, that as I said, you may be ready, lest if some Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we not to mention you, should be ashamed of this confident boasting. Therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time and prepare your generous gift beforehand, which you had previously promised, that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not as a grudging obligation. So what Paul's talking about, once again, is this. All right, Corinthians, this is your time to be giving. This is your time to be involved in the accumulation of relief for the saints in Jerusalem. And we're going to be sending individuals to remind you about that because we don't want to come with people from the churches of Macedonia and then they see that you have not been prepared when we have been telling them that you are eager to be involved in this ministry. And so, once again, he challenges them to be prepared to be generous, not to give under obligation, but to understand that there are elements involved with giving that should generate a generosity within the heart of every follower of Christ to be involved in the support of the Lord's work. That is what launches us into the passage we read earlier and where we're going to be focusing our attention today. There are certain characteristics that come along with generous Christian giving. There are things that accompany the giving of our material wealth, our finances to the support of the work. And now when we come to verse 6 of chapter 9, we begin to see what they are. And here comes the very first. But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Generous Christian giving is characterized by confidence, an absolute certainty of a spiritual reality. And here's what that reality is. If we give according to the standards that the Lord established, those that we reviewed in chapter 8, if those become the principles upon which we build our commitment to the Lord's work and our giving, the Lord promises he will never allow you to be in need of that which you need to have. Now that's a pretty strong statement. Now, some people, you, you remember we talked about the Philippians verse where it says, but my God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. And we talked about that being within the realm of the context of their 
Faithfulness, remember, they were one of the Macedonian churches. They were individuals who were giving sacrificially. They were giving according to the standards of what the Lord wanted. And so here now, Paul comes back to them and says, because of that, the Lord is making a promise to you. He is going to see to it that your needs are going to be taken care of just as you have cared for the needs of those who are involved in following him. I can remember when we first started to teach our children about the the opportunity that we have as followers of Christ to give. Now, they, they were very little at the time. They wanted to give everything they had. You know, that's that's... Isn't that kind of a normal thing for kids to do? They would, they would over-respond to it. And they would earn little bits of money for, for different things that they would do and stuff like that and their, um, their allowance and so forth. And when we taught them this, the, for, here, take, take everything, take everything. Now, I appreciated that, but what I had to have them understand was this. There are responsible ways for God's people to give. And then there are irresponsible ways. And what makes this hard is that when you have the tenderness of a child who says, here, I want to give everything to the Lord, you have to kind of back them up to to teach them the truth that, wait a minute, there are responsibilities that you are going to have, there are obligations that you are going to need to fill financially along the way. And the reason that's hard is because as they get older the desire to give all that they have diminishes. And sometimes it goes all the way to nothing. And so trying to find that balance is really hard. If, if you came to know the Lord as your Savior later in life and you had already established your financial uh, priorities, it probably was a bit of a difficult thing to come to grips with what the Lord expects from his people to be involved in giving and in supporting his work. Well, here Paul is talking about this, and he says, I am going to make you a promise. And here's what the promise is. If you give according to the standards of God's word, you can rest in this assurance. You will never lack. You will never be in need. Now, someone would say, oh, Pastor, I'm not so sure that you're being truthful about that. So let's get God's word on it. I just deliver the message. Proverbs chapter 11, verses 24 and 25 say this, There is one who scatters, yet increases more. And there is one who withholds more than is right, but it leads to poverty. The generous soul will be made rich, and he who waters will also be watered himself. Now, somebody says, well, pastor, it sounds like you're getting very close to that prosperity gospel thing that we talked about. And that's not what this is talking about. Riches are not only measured by material things, but they're measured by spiritual things as well. The material will be cared for by the Lord when we follow his pattern. But then there are riches that far exceed that which we can embrace materially. Malachi, the Old Testament prophet, put it this way. Will a man rob God? <laughs> I would suspect that some people, when they hear that verse, would say, uh, what's he talking about? Why, why, why should he bring something like that up? Because there are followers of Christ who rob God. Quite frankly, they do. They, they withhold what they should be giving, and they rob God. And so here's what he says. 
Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. And now he's directing this to the people of Israel. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it, and I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, so that he, who, that he will not destroy the fruit of the ground, nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit for you in the field, says the Lord of hosts. And all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. Do you understand what the Lord just said? You give according to the way I have instructed you, and I will take care of you. If you don't, you're under a curse. I'm just the messenger. The Lord said in Luke chapter 6, verse 38, Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use it will be measured back to you. I told you when we taught our kids about giving, um, it, was, it was hard to have them hold back. But then from a, a human point of view, there are times when, it, quite frankly, it's hard to give too. Um, in our early years of ministry, uh, <laughs> things I, I'm not even quite sure how to... <laughs> how to describe it, but things were very, very tight. But before we ever entered into the ministry, we had determined that we are going to follow the Lord's plan in giving, no matter what. And so we tried to honor that. I'm telling you this just, I guess, as a personal illustration of what the Lord has promised he delivers. We really were not being paid enough to get by. But people would bring us food. And an old car would keep running. And we had some significant doctor's bills. And unsolicited, the doctors would write to us and say, um, your bill is forgiven. And we would scratch our heads. You remember this, huh? Yeah, I know, it's hard to to think back to those days. All I know is this. God kept his word. We have never been in need. Never. But that was preceded by a determination. So, uh, unless you think this, you know, this would really be easy to embrace this and say, well, if I give to the Lord, then I'm going to really do well getting back. Let me just remind you that that is not a love for the Lord that is prompting that thought. That's love for greed. And the Lord does not promise to honor greed. He promises to honor those who honor him. 
And so the heart is really the issue. A fellow by the name of Hughes made this statement. The source of giving is not the purse, but the heart. But the heart. So, here we have this first characteristic. We can do so, as if, if we give generously, with confidence. But then he goes on to tell us that there's another characteristic that is uh, characterized here. Um, make sure I have this right. Yet. Yeah. No. Yes. Okay, folks, you've got to understand, we are still playing with all this stuff. I'm doing it up here now. Is that not cool? I'm a techie. Okay. Generous Christian giving is characterized by predetermination. Listen to what it says in verse 7. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity. So what the Lord is saying is this. I don't want you responding to emotional appeals. One of the things that we really try to avoid, and I try to do this even with our our guests that come, our goal is not to make an appeal that, that penetrates your heart but not your head. Do you understand what I'm saying? You, you can respond emotionally. Like when we talk about the orphans in, in Nepal, instantly that has an emotional pull. But then you have to go beyond that to understand, you know, this really is a wonderful ministry opportunity. It's not just helping the children who need help. But as I think about this, this land in Nepal is so dark. How is the light going to penetrate it? Well, we have missionaries that go, but it's a tough, tough work for them. It would be much more effective to have individuals who are Nepalese who would be able to not only know the Savior, but lead others to Christ to bring light to this dark land. And then we say, man, this is a worthwhile project. This is something I want to be part of. I want to be involved in this. And I determine in advance the amount to which I believe I can legitimately give to that ministry. I don't make up my mind because of the emotion of the moment but I decide at home what I'm going to give. I do the same thing when it comes to the financial support of our church on a regular basis. We determine in advance what we're going to give so that when the offering is received, it doesn't depend upon how happy I'm feeling that day or how sad I'm feeling that day. What it depends upon is a predetermination of the amount that we believe the Lord would have us give. And that is the pattern by which we establish our giving. And then beyond that, he may lead us to to give to other projects, but it's all predetermined. And by the way, there is a predetermined time for that giving. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians initially, he gave really just four brief verses that dealt with this matter that now he gives two entire chapters to. So let's take a look at them. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. You'll notice that they occur quite near the end of his letter. And so he's kind of giving this final word because this is going to be important. And he says this, 
Now consider, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day of the week. What's the first day of the week? What is it? It's Sunday. It's not Monday. It's the Lord's Day. It's the day that you gather together to worship. It's the day that you gather together to minister to one another. It is the day that you meet together as the the day in which the body of Christ gathers. On that day, now continue reading, on the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper... There's another principle, that there be no collections when I come. And then he goes on in verses 3 and 4 to once again identify the importance of administrating these gifts properly. And when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. In other words, you pick the people, then those are the ones we'll send. But if it is fitting that I go also, they will go with me. In other words, if it's okay with you that I accompany them, then then I'm going to go along with them. In other words, basically, if you trust me, I'm going to go too. So you can count on your gifts arriving where they're supposed to. So what's he saying? He's saying this. I I want you to give at a certain time. And I want you to give a specified amount. I didn't go into this, but sometimes we struggle with this idea of what should I give? How much should I give? And I think if we keep these principles in mind, those of you who are in small groups, you you are studying, if you haven't studied it already, you're going to get to uh, developing the different contexts. You remember how to study the word, to determine what it is really saying, and it talks about the historic content, context, it talks about the literary context, and then you're going to get down to, it talks about the theological context. And the theological context is pulling together the body of truth that is taught about a specific subject. You remember he talked about prayer. uh, And it says, ask and you will receive, seek and you will find, knock and it shall be open unto you. Which leaves you with the idea that you can just have anything you want if you just ask, seek and knock. But then he goes on to say, no, the theology of prayer involves a variety of teachings throughout the New Testament that says if you ask anything according to his will, he hears you. Do you remember? If you're not in a small group, you need to get into one because you've got to be part of what's going on as we're going forward as disciples. And and you'll have a chance again very shortly. Anyway, he's talking about this theology of giving and Right away, I hear people use tithe as if that is the final word. And I want to tell you something right now. The tithe that is spoken of scripturally is very different than what we consider it to be. It was a principle that was initiated by Abraham when he met Melchizedek. He gave him a tenth of everything. But when the law was established, the Lord required a tithe. But the tithe to the Israelite was not 10%. It was at least 23%. Because there are two tithes that are spoken of as a full 10% and a third tithe that some people believe meant every year and others believe it meant 
uh, once every three years. So somewhere between 23 and 30% became the tithe. And the reason that that was an issue was because that's how they supported their government as well as their spiritual ministry. It was their tax. And then when we come into the New Testament, you don't find the tithe mentioned at all until, well, I shouldn't say, let, let me put it this way. Christ mentioned it, but it was before the beginning of the New Covenant. Right? You all know that the Gospels are still Old Testament, right? Okay. So he said that in Old Testament times, but now as we move into the New Testament, I think the tithe is still a wonderful principle, but it is not a command. It is not a directive. It is a principle. Because then he talks about tithes and offerings which extend beyond the 10% that becomes the principle upon which we base our giving, and then he adds a third element, sacrificially. Not to impoverishment, but our giving, biblically, has to go beyond the tithe, beyond the offerings, to the point where we're actually giving up something. It is a discipline that says, you know what, I would really like to have all these things, but if I, if I give to the Lord's work, I can't have this. Now, he's not talking about not caring for your family. He's not talking about not paying your taxes. He's not talking about not preparing for the future. He's not talking about paying, paying your bills. He's talking about wanting something that, quite frankly, you don't need, and you could sacrifice for it. And so he says, that's... Biblical giving. Very quiet. If I'm wrong, get me. And you know I mean that. But that's biblical giving. The principle of the tithe extended by the offering taken to the point of sacrifice. That's how we give. Or do we? He talks about the location where we give. The church. I don't understand why things are going the way they are today. But we were talking about this in our, our uh, school governance board meeting. Something has happened to the Christian community where the church, for many, is not important. Just telling you the truth. And, and we're seeing this. We're seeing this even within our own congregation. The church is not that important. Do you know, it used to be that people would select a church that they would go to based upon doctrine, what the Word of God has to say. That isn't the way they do it anymore. Now they choose on the realm of Entertainment, the type of music, the feel-good messages. And all I'm seeing is this. And I'm watching around the auditorium, and a lot of you are shaking your heads yes, because you know what I'm talking about. You, you see what's happening. The church is becoming like the world. Entertain me. Make me happy. Reprove. 
rebuke, exhort. That's what God's told me. See, we're not popular. Look around. (laughs) Did you have to struggle for a seat this morning? Got to get there early. You want a good seat. No, the... I'm moving on. <laughs> I'm just going to get in trouble if I, if I go down that road. But let me tell you something. Go back to 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2. On the first day of the week, let every one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. Pardon me, verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you also, so you must do also. The responsibility of the believer is to make the church the primary focal point of their giving because that's where the distributions are made in the appropriate way. It does not mean you cannot give beyond that to other things. I believe you should. I believe that's a right thing to do. I believe giving to the orphans in Nepal is a wonderful thing, and I'm delighted that we as a church have, have met the needs of these 20 kids for the next year. That is, that's incredible. But that shouldn't be in place of what we give to the church. Take it or leave it. Principle number three. Generous Christian giving is characterized by cheerfulness. Ooh. Do you see the end of verse 7? God loves a cheerful giver. In other words, he loves the person who finds joy in giving. And there are people who who experience that. They, They give joyfully. It's like, Man, here is a a great opportunity to give. And man, I want to be part of this. And and they give. And it's like, oh, yes, that was good. Do you know that we get our word hilarious from the Greek word that's translated cheerful here in verse 7? I've heard people pray this. Help us, Father, to give hilariously. And they're, they're kind of capturing the idea there that when we give, we give in such a way that our hearts are filled with joy, not grudgingly. Some people give and they'll say, ah, okay, here you go. The Lord doesn't say that that's the way I want you to give. I was reading um, a statement that was made by Chuck Swindoll. And he said, here are a few reasons for giving cheerfully. Giving encourages unselfishness within us. Giving brings others' needed relief and encouragement. Giving forces us out of our own tight radius world. Giving keeps us from becoming too attached to material things. Giving models the life Christ lived. Giving results in eternal rewards. Giving teaches us the value of servanthood. Giving makes us more cheerful, caring people. Giving prompts greater sensitivity toward others. Giving provides an example for others to follow. 
I added a couple to that, though that doesn't need any addition. But let me just throw these out. Why do we give? Because Christ gave himself for you. Because all you have has been given to you by the Lord. Because, generally speaking, you have much more than you need. Because the work of the Lord has need of your participation. Not that the Lord needs it, but the work of the Lord does. Because God gives grace to give to those who are willing to give. And because giving my possessions is the first step in every good work. Look at verse 8 to back that last one up. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you always, having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. You see the context? It begins with giving. And so the Lord says, your giving is part of a of what should be a cheerful heart that says, I am so thankful I can give. That's not the society we live in today, is it? No. All right, the final principle, or the final characteristic is this. Generous giving is characterized by expectancy. Look at verses 12 through 14. For the administration of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also is abounding through many thanksgivings to God. While through the proof of this ministry they glorify God for the obedience of your confession to the gospel of Christ and for your liberal sharing with them and all men and by their prayer for you who long for you because of the exceeding grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. What is the expectancy with which we should give? Here's the first that is identified for us here. God will be glorified. Is that not true? If we give generously... God is glorified. Let, let me, let me uh, put it this way. If we, if we send a gift of $24,000 to Nepal, and the Freemans look at that and they say, Thank God. these 20 kids are going to be taken care of. That's where it starts, doesn't it? Thank God. That's exactly what Paul's talking about. Thanksgiving, praise, is reflected back to God because anyone that's on the receiving end knows that it's because of what God has worked in the hearts of his people that has provided that. And then they will express a thanksgiving to those who did the providing. But the first thing, and, and I hear this often, we, we have a wonderful opportunity. From time to time, and, and that, this is the bittersweet part of it, there is a significant need within the life of, of people within our church, the lives of people within our church. And then 
the church has the capability to step in and help meet that need. And the first thing that you will hear when a person receives a check to help them, maybe just to pay for their electric, thank God. Thank the church. Is that not good? I mean, I expect the Lord to receive the glory for what we do. That's the expectancy. But then, there's another part of this. Then we expect others to follow our example. Here's where it gets a little tough. The giving of the people of our church is anonymous except for one individual. And that person knows simply because we have to keep a record for your tax purposes. You want your tax paper, right? This is a time of year that you kind of expect that. You expect to have recognition. That, so there's a person who knows it's not me. I do not want to know anything about any finances. Please do not hand me a check for the church. Drop it in the... Um, if, if you miss the offering plate, drop it in the benevolence box. Just put it there. It'll be taken care of. The right people will get it. One person will know, but everybody else doesn't. But here's what does happen. When we publish, and we do, monthly, the statements concerning where we are financially as a church, you can pretty well figure out if people are giving as they should or if they're not. Am I being truthful with you? Yeah, I'm, I'm just telling you the truth. You can, you can tell. And when offerings go down, people think, well, if nobody else is given, why should I? But then offerings go up, and then, of course, people would say, well, other people are given, why should I have to give? Then, okay, just forget everything I'm saying right here. <laughs> no, we want to do this the right way. We want to do this from a biblical perspective. When people in God's work are generous, others are challenged to be generous as well. And now I'm going to walk out on a very thin line and I'm going to tell you all something because this bothered the daylights out of me. I, I have not always been a pastor, you know that, but I would hear these stories. Pastors would say, well, I don't give from my salary because my life is my giving to the Lord. Baloney. That is a pile of nonsense. And I think that that is reproachful, and I think it is wrong. Now, I'm not going to tell you what I give, but here's what I do want you to know so that nobody questions this. Everything that I present to you as the biblical standard for giving, we practice. And we have as long as we have been together, and I did that before I was married. And I believe Debbie did as well. I just want you to know that much so that you're not saying, well, man, it's easy for him to get up there and to say these things. I wonder how much he listens to it. I do. Okay. Enough said. Third element. We can expect others to be filled with gratitude and love for our generosity. 
what I imagine is going to happen down the road somewhere is we're going to be hearing from some kids in Nepal who are going to say, thank you. I'm actually eating three meals a day. Thank you. I have clothing to put on. Thank you. I have a bed to sleep in at night. I don't have to curl up under some trash at the dump. Thank you. That's what's going to happen. So now we've concluded. Three Sundays on giving. If you're a guest, you probably think we do this every week. (laughs) Not true. But I do want to call your attention to the very last verse of this chapter. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. This is something that does not happen very often. Paul runs out of words. Before I get to that, I forgot about a quote. I thought this was a rather interesting quote. A fellow by the name of Murray Harris said this, Giving enriches the donor, supplies the needs of the recipients, and promotes the glory of God. Doesn't that capture the whole thing? Could have gotten out of here 40 minutes ago. But that's it, right there. Then Paul, who never runs out of words, says, I don't have any way to describe to you the gift that has been provided through Jesus Christ. And that's where all true uh, giving begins. Christ gave himself. He left the glories of heaven, became a man, and took upon his shoulders our sin, died to pay the penalty of that sin, rose again from the dead, and offers to those who will turn away from their sin and their self-righteousness and trust in him as their savior. He gives them forgiveness of all sins, past, present, and future, and freely gives them the gift of eternal life. That's the greatest gift of all, isn't it? Yeah. I hope you've received it. Let's stand. Father, this... uh, portion of your word uh, reaches to a level within our hearts and in our minds that is very touchy. Lord, you you don't talk about your money. That seems to be the mantra that we embrace as people. We don't want others to know how much we have or even how little we have. But you know. And the principles of your word will never take us to the place where we would violate any other thing that you have told us. To provide for our families. To obey Caesar. To care for the widows and the orphans. And yet, Father, we still have so much that's left. Our prayer would be, Lord, that we would give to you according to the principles of your word. I pray that we would never have to draw upon the generosity of a few to care for that which should be provided by the many. I thank you that through Jesus Christ you have provided forgiveness and life and I pray that no one would leave here today without accepting through faith that sacrifice of Jesus Christ for their sins. 
thank you for these days that we've had on this very, very difficult and touchy subject. In Jesus' name, amen.